You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Galatians chapter 1 verse 11 says this, For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. As Paul continues to (coughs) describe his experience of coming to the Lord and then being called and and anointed as an apostle by Jesus specifically, and that was the nature of that apostolic ministry in the first generation of the church. It wasn't just that anybody could go out and start uh, building the church. Jesus commissioned those guys specifically, his disciples, now apostles, including the apostle Paul, to go out and build the church. And this is the activity that Paul begins talking about in terms of his ministry. And he says this interesting thing, that the gospel that he is preaching, that he has preached, is not man's gospel. Meaning, he didn't learn this from some pastor that he had who discipled him and taught him. No, Jesus directly taught him through a revelation. That's what verse 12 says. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And This leads, again, to sort of that that point that Paul was making, that if anybody brings to you a different gospel than the one that has already been proclaimed to you, then let him be accursed, cut off. Even if an angel would appear to you and say, hey, the good news, the gospel of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, I've got something more for you to consider. He would say that that angel or that prophet or whoever it is that's proclaiming this message they should be accursed, cut off, because once the gospel has been established, it's there. That's it. It doesn't change at all. And, and so one of the problems that this leads to oftentimes where pseudo-Christian cults, people who have claimed to have a word from the Lord that's different from what we've seen in Scripture, these kinds of things, the question would be is, well, how come Paul can have a vision and I can't? If I believe in Jesus, if I'm committed to following Jesus, how come Paul gets to have a vision and I don't get to have some sort of revelation from the Lord? Well, in a word, Jesus. And what I mean is this, Jesus' physical presence. Now, people may think that they have a vision or a dream or some thought that Perhaps Jesus is speaking to them, those kinds of things. But the distinction for the apostles was that they had physical interaction with Jesus. He actually came to them in physical form. Now, with the original apostles, the 11 minus, or the 12 minus Judas, so the original 11 guys, and then even the guy that was added, Matthias, I think, was it Matthias or Justice? I think one of those those two names in terms of who was added to the 12. You never hear about him again because... The Apostle Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And Paul the Apostle met Jesus physically, even though Jesus had already died and ascended, Jesus came and appeared to him physically. That's why Paul could say he's had a revelation from the Lord, was because of that physical experience with Jesus. And so in verse 13 he continues, and, and continues telling his story. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him, mark this, among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, Paul is telling this part of his story, how it is that he uh, went from being this violent opposer of God's people, right, And, and was one who was pursuing his own faith, Judaism, but denying who Jesus was because he was so, mark this, extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. It's an interesting thing in religion. 
There's always a balance between truth and reality. That's, this is a philosophy that I've come to understand, that there's always a balance between truth and reality. Truth is something that is constant. It's, it, it can't be uh, your truth and your truth and your truth. A lot of times in our society, we love, or people love to say that. You, in fact, in school this week, you tell me your truth was the assignment. And, and when they use that language, that's not what they actually mean. What they mean is, tell me your experience, right? And so what you see is the difference between truth and reality. Truth is something that is constant and eternal. It never changes. It's objective. It's not based on someone's perspective. Truth is always the same. And so because we know that the truth of God's plan of redemption came from the very beginning of time, that a savior would come, a redeemer would come for God's people, we knew that from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. But what happens is that people's reality, their love for the traditions of men, the things of this world, can often skew or pull them away from remaining consistent, steadfast, stalwart in the truth that God has called us to. Now, it's been said many times before, the Jews at the time of Jesus should have known based on the Old Testament scriptures that he was fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. They should have understood and known at that time that he was who he said he was, one with the Father. And when he arrived on what we call Palm Sunday and came into Jerusalem, they should have known, they should have understood that this was the one. And yet they missed it. Why? Well, I submit to you exactly what Paul says is that perhaps it was because of their zealousness, their excitedness, their devotion to the traditions of their fathers. It's very easy to get caught in tradition. And not just within Judaism or some other form of, of pseudo-Christian religion, but even within our own churches. We're all guilty of this fact that there are certain parts of church traditions that we like versus don't like. Some of us like certain types of music and songs versus other styles, right? Some people like high church liturgy. They feel the awe of the Lord in those places where there's stained glass and pews and choral singing, beautiful things. And yet other people like what's called low church, real simple, get together, open the Bible, use an acoustic guitar and sing some songs. Like, there's, everybody has their own preference, but what can happen and what we need to be cautious of is saying, I'm zealous for the traditions rather than I'm zealous for the truth. And this is what Paul's drawing the contrast between. Verse 15 again says, but when he who had set me apart, mark this, before I was born, again, ascending to the doctrines of grace, your salvation, my salvation, was determined before anything ever occurred. God has known from the very beginning what his plan was. That's what Romans 8, 9, 10 talks about. Before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal to his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's interesting. Paul will talk more about this, how it is that he was called to go preach to the Gentiles and not the Jews, even though he was a Jew. And then he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Before we ever go and consult with a person to confirm or deny whether something is true in our life, maybe we feel compelled in a certain calling, maybe we feel compelled uh, to enter into a specific type of ministry, or feel compelled to you know, uh, switch jobs, or enter into a relationship with someone, or married couple starting a family, or whatever the case might be. Paul shows us an excellent model here for our life in Christ, that before we ever go consult with a human being, even if it's with good intent and that person is wise and is a godly person, the first place that we should go is someplace quiet and just be with the Lord. Just be with the Lord and let him minister to us. Let him speak to us. Follow Jesus' example. Get up early. Go even while it's still dark and find some place on the top of a mountain where you can just quietly fellowship and commune with the Lord. And I know the question, well, can I just commune with the Lord while I'm still laying in bed? Yeah, you can. <laughs> I'm sure you can. But there's something about physically getting away from the distractions. 
getting away from, from the, the things that would draw our attention away from simply sitting with Jesus and hearing from the Lord. And it's simple for us today in the sense of before we ever go consult with a person, if we're to go and simply just talk to the Lord and sit and spend time with him, he's given us the greatest gift of his voice. Number one, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us if we're in Christ. But number two, he's given us his scripture. Man, God will never call you to do something that will not be supported by Scripture. And, and this is an interesting concept, and, and this has been twisted oftentimes throughout history, so we have to be cautious about this. Remember that Scripture can never mean something different to us today than it meant to those who originally received the writing. Scripture cannot be mean something different to us based on our circumstances than the original intent was when it was written. Okay, so what that means is if you have something in your mind or in your heart and you somehow feel compelled that it's of the Lord, but it's in contradiction to something scripture says, you cannot be justified in that. You have to change your mind to bend to the will of the scripture, not bend scripture to match your will. And far too often I've seen people go to the scripture and go, I want to justify being angry at someone. I want to justify uh, holding a grudge against someone. And I'm going to look in the scripture and I'm going to take a scripture out of context, twist it to support what I want it to mean. It's sort of like in an extreme case, if you can think about it this way, if I had murderous intent towards someone, if I really wanted to, to, to do away with someone, and that's extreme, of course, there, there, there's a way that I could use the scripture to defend that. As crazy as it sounds, I could use the scripture in a, in a way by twisting it to mean something different than, it is intent, in, than it's intended to mean to defend and support myself being violent towards someone else. This is how things like the genocide of Jews, you know, Hitler in, in World War II against the Jews, this, they had biblical support, they would claim. It was twisted, and it was messed up, but they, they would misuse scripture for this intent. And so Paul gives us this great model. Before he ever went to consult with a person, before he ever went to even people who, who uh, looked to be uh, official and knowledgeable, all those things, he has this humility of, of saying, I'm just going to go and I'm going to sit with Jesus. So take a look at verse 18. <clears throat> then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. We went over this on Sunday. You can listen to it on the podcast or the website, thewayeugene.org. But suffice it to say, Luke 15, 7 supports that idea that all of heaven rejoices over one sinner, one lost sinner being brought back into the faith, being brought home and saved. Luke 15, 7 supports that idea. And we see that in truth as the church glorified God because of Paul's salvation. Chapter 2. I, I don't, in keeping with understanding that the meaning of Scripture is set, it's our job to understand it and to grow in it. I don't ever want to press anything onto Scripture that it doesn't intend explicitly, but the truth is, is that there are themes and undercurrents to Scripture that aren't always on the surface level. One of the things that, that is true about this is a theme that Paul often writes about in all of his letters, and that is the unity of the church. The fact that we as church members need to be unified and not have division. And this is an echoing of what Jesus prayed again <clears throat> for the church, that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. So let's take a look at chapter 2, verse 1, when it says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, Paul has, has spent three years by himself after he met Jesus, right? 
And then he went up to Jerusalem at that point and visited Cephas and saw James. And, and it was just, we, we would assume, to confirm that this message that has been shared, that this Saul, who was formerly persecuting the church, is now one of us. He's in the faith. Then after that, it says there was another 14 years where he went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas. Now, in the interim, those 14 years, that's when Paul was doing his first missionary journeys, his first and second missionary journeys, where he was going around and preaching the gospel in cities and proclaiming the truth of Jesus, and the church was expanding and growing. And so we see in this accounting of of how Paul was recognized and confirmed as one of the apostles, and, and unfortunately what we see is that he's going to have to enter into an uncomfortable situation. And if there's one thing I want us to understand by chapter 2 and the explanation of what Paul describes here is that we as followers of Jesus often have to become comfortable being uncomfortable. That's the theme of what what we would say tonight is, is about in terms of hearing Paul's story. That we as followers of Christ often have to become comfortable being uncomfortable. And so let's take a look. at this encounter that perhaps was uncomfortable in nature, but necessary in truth. Verse 2 says this, I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Here we have Paul, 14 years after his first visit to Jerusalem, his first visit ostensibly for the purpose of confirming that he was a Christian so that those who were in leadership of the church at Jerusalem, James, and then uh, John and Peter and the work that they were doing, uh, that they would confirm that Paul was, yeah, he was one of us. He's in the faith. And then he's sent off and he's on his missions and he's got guys like Barnabas who are well-respected in the church. And he has a young disciple of his own, Titus, who he's brought along in his teaching and all these things. And he spent this 14 years proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. He was told specifically by Jesus, you, formerly a Jew, are going to go proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. And that's what he did. And here he comes 14 years later back to Jerusalem for what purpose? to confirm the gospel that he's preaching, to to sort of do a a check-in, to make sure that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing faithfully. Paul shows, (coughs) shows us a humility in this. Here's why. Because we know by the accounting of what Paul was doing in the Acts of the Apostles that he was proclaiming a true gospel. He was traveling around proclaiming a true gospel. The church was growing. Jesus was saving people. The Holy Spirit was filling people. That work was being accomplished. Paul could have, based simply on his experience, said, I've got this dialed in. I'm doing the right thing. Obviously, the proof is in the pudding. We see people getting saved, and the church is expanding and growing. It's working. And yet, with ultimate humility... Paul, even perhaps convinced of his own rightness, I'm doing exactly what Jesus told me to do, went and conferred with these other men, the ones who, as he describes, seem to be influential in the church at Jerusalem. And again, you could read this accounting in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem. That's what this describes. But Paul comes to do a a check-in to confirm the message that he's preaching, all those things. Listen, This principle is true for all of us as Christians. If you don't have someone that you check in with regularly regarding your faith, you should. You should have someone in your life that that you've given permission to or have asked specifically in specific situations to say, hey, listen, this is what's going on in my life. Does that seem right? Does that seem to match up what we know about being a disciple of Jesus these issues that I'm dealing with or this relationship in my life or this situation that I'm in, does that seem right? And, And we should, with humility, give other brothers and sisters in the Lord permission to question us on those things. And again, not to be the hall monitor of our faith, not to sit there and look over our shoulders all the time. That's not the purpose of it, but it's for the purpose of saying there are moments in time that like Paul does here where he checks in and goes, 
am I on the right track? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing here? We need to have those kinds of intimate friendships and relationships. That is one of the great purposes for marriage. Now, we know from Scripture that not everyone's called to marriage, and it's a gift from God, actually, that someone could be single. I think we don't highlight that enough in the church. I think the church is dominated by this expression of family and marriage and kids, and that's healthy. That's a part of God's family too. But there's also a balance to that that says, man, being single is a gift so that you could just serve the Lord. Like that's a huge gift. So, but in marriage, one of the purposes of that is that you're there for this accountability for one another. And if you're single, you have to press into a relationship like that, whether it's with a parent a friend, a sibling, whatever the case might be. Now, Paul had these types of relationships. One of those relationships was, was with Titus, who's accompanying him. In fact, as you go through all of the epistles that Paul writes, you, you notice he's never by himself, really. He's always got a companion of some sort. He's always got somebody or multiple somebodies who are traveling with him and experiencing the ministry with him and are giving testimony and witness to the fidelity of the ministry, meaning that Paul is remaining consistent in the truth. That as well is a lesson for us. Man, it's not good to be isolated in life. It's not good as a Christian to be on your own. We need to have fellowship. And I'll tell you this from the perspective of someone who's very much, uh, I've discovered over time, I'm an introvert, which is sort of funny. Uh, I like the, the, the calling on my life of teaching and ministering and singing and being in front of people doesn't bother me. I like that. But the funny part is on the flip side of that, given the choice after this, I would rather just sit in my room and read and, or play, play guitar by myself. Like I'm prone to that isolation it's not healthy and we can find all kinds of excuses for it but as a christian we are called to fellowship we need to be with other people and we need to pour into those relationships we see that in paul's life constantly now take a look at verse three in coming to jerusalem it says in verse three but even titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. While the gospel is simple in definition, it's the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, his burial and his resurrection to defeat death and promise us eternal life, there is so much that comes out of the truth of the gospel that we learn as we grow in our faith. One of those things is this idea of freedom. We have freedom in Christ. Now, we're told in multiple places in scripture not to abuse that freedom. Not to use that freedom to pursue the pleasure of the flesh, but rather use that freedom to pursue holiness and the rejection of sin in our life. But here's what Paul's describing, is that Titus, his companion, and the one whom he's discipling and bringing along with him, he was Greek, and therefore, obviously, he wasn't Jewish. He hadn't been circumcised, as was the tradition of the Jews, And there was a group of people who were in the church who were claiming this, and this was a heresy very early in the church, that to become a Christian, you first had to become Jewish. You first had to uh, be circumcised, the sign of covenant with God's people, and then be baptized to become a Christian. And in addition to that, Not only did you have to get circumcised, become a Jew first, and then convert to Christianity, additionally, those who were called Judaizers would say, you also need to keep all the feasts, and you need to maintain the sacrifice in the temple. And this was a false teaching, but it was one that because of the Jewish heritage of the early Christians, right, and whether it was because they wanted to maintain family relationships and say, yes, we believe in Jesus, but we're going to maintain our Jewish life too because of 
family, if we stop doing that, we're going to get disowned. Or if it was simply because of, again, that zealousness for tradition that says, yes, we are thankful Jesus died for our sins, but we really like the tradition. It just, that's home for us. That's what we're used to, right? Whatever the reason was, they were missing out on the point that Jesus fulfilled all of the law. He fulfilled all of what the feast days were prophesying of. Jesus fulfilled all of those purposes. And what Paul says is that those who slipped into the church to teach this heresy, their purpose was to bring people under the slavery of the law again. And what Paul says is that Pardon me, what he says is to them, those who had slipped into the church to to bring people uh, into slavery to the law, to entrap them in the law again, he says to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Again, there are uncomfortable situations where we have to judge rightly in even the practice of the church. Is what we're doing simply tradition, or are we doing what we've been commanded to do by Jesus? Are we following the mission that he has given to us, which we call the Great Commission, to go out and make disciples? Or are we simply building monuments to the traditions that we enjoy and say, hey, if you're going to be a part of this church, you have to do these certain things. That's how we do it around here. We've always done it that way. That is a death knell for a church. The moment a church says, nope, this is how we've always done it and we're doing it this way because my grandpa did it this way or because I want to do it the same way my parents did it, that is the death knell of the church. The only thing that's important in the gathering of the church and the ministry of the church is that we fulfill the Great Commission. That is the importance of it. The proclamation of the gospel, the saving of souls, and the building up of the faith of the believers This is what we're called to in the ministry of the church. And for these, those who slipped into the church, and mark this, Jesus warned, did he not, that there would come wolves in sheep's clothing trying to draw people away from the faith. The moment you add something to your faith in Jesus Christ, some tradition, some practice of some kind, when you add to your salvation in Jesus Christ through faith, you, you are nullifying that the moment you add something else. Believe in Jesus, but get circumcised. Believe in Jesus, but still eat kosher. Believe in Jesus, but practice all the high holy days. Believe in Jesus, but practice the spiritual gifts in the way that we interpret them. Believe in Jesus, but give this amount of money. The moment you add something to faith in Jesus you are falling back under an entrapment to the law. Perhaps it's a law of your own creation, but a law nonetheless. Martin Luther, who he's most well known, uh, of course, being one of the original reformers of the church in fighting against the excesses and abuses of the Catholic church, he's most well known for his commentary on Galatians. (coughs) He says this, The believing Jews, however, could not get it through their heads that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. They were encouraged in their wrong attitude by these false apostles. The result was that the people were up in arms against Paul and his doctrine. Paul was speaking about this freedom that we have in Christ, that Jesus has abolished the law, meaning he's fulfilled it, it's complete, it no longer has power over us. And we'll speak more about that. Uh, Again, in regard to these false brothers, these ones who who came in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ, John Stott says this, this may mean either that they had no business to be in the church fellowship at all, meaning they weren't really Christians, but they were coming in to try and subvert what was taking place in the church, or they had simply gatecrashed the private council of the apostles. Either way, these men had no business in trying to teach this heresy. Take a look at verse (coughs) 6. And from those who seem to be influential, and this is an interesting way that Paul talks. Uh, uh, He's referring to guys like James and John and Peter. He's talking about like the the most important guys in Jesus' inner circle. 
But he says it in this way. From those who seem to be influential, and mark this parenthetical statement, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So he transitions from saying that that he came in to refute and resist this false heresy that was coming into the church, this adding or this binding of the people and trapping them to the law, specifically being circumcised and then becoming a Christian. But Paul then shifts to this expression of saying, in our language, he's not playing the Christian celebrity game here. Okay? In the history of the church, the names James and John and Peter, th- those are some pretty big names, right? We could agree that that's, they're kind of a big deal. Like things that they wrote are in the Bible. That's kind of a big deal. And if Paul had wanted to, he could have bragged or, or just simply laid it out there, name dropped a little bit and said, yeah, Peter and I were sitting by the fire the other night and discussing the atonement, right? Or, or James and I were discussing eternal security. or what, Like he could have had this sort of high-minded attitude that says, yeah, all the biggest names, I'm in that inner circle. And Paul says, no, uh, they seemed influential, but what they are makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. And in truth, no matter who they are, even though they might have been influential, They didn't add anything to my ministry. Paul simply confirms that the gospel he's preaching and the one being preached by those who seem to be influential in Jerusalem is the same, right? And this is an an example for us or or a reminder that even with the earliest expressions and practices of the faith, there was deception and heresy that began moment one. Oftentimes, I know that I fall prey to the sort of... um, the idealistic idea that the early church was somehow pure and perfect. That we want to look at the early church as an example because somehow they had it all figured out. Now, in a lot of ways, because they were so close to Jesus, there was a purity to what they were doing. And there's a lot of value in looking at the story of how the church grew in Acts and going, how do they keep it so simple and yet so effective? That is good for us to study. But there also has to be the reminder that, listen, uh, in Acts chapter 2, right after it talks about how, you know, 5,000 people got saved and they continued steadfastly in, the, in you know, the apostles' doctrine and prayer and, and fellowship and the breaking of bread, those things, right? Like, listen, several verses down from that, you have Ananias and Sapphira and how they lie to the Holy Spirit and drop dead in front of the apostles. Like, listen, real quick in the history of the church, things go bad quickly, There's always this need to be reforming the church. There's always this need to be calling ourselves out to say, are we doing what's right? And here Paul gives us this expression of going, I really don't, the language is hard, but but he's saying those people who seemed influential, they didn't really add anything to my ministry. And he's not saying that in a derogatory negative fashion. What he's really confirming is saying, I was doing what the Lord called me to do. They're doing what the Lord called them to do. It's the same gospel, and we just have different ministries, different areas that we're ministering to, and that's totally great. It just confirms that we're doing what is right. Now, this is also good advice for anyone who feels called or led toward ministry of any kind. Our ministry has to be simply from Jesus, The ministries that we pursue in life cannot be because we're copying another person's ministry or modeling our ministry on another person's ministry specifically. Yes, we look to more mature, older Christians than us, and and like Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We look for that kind of discipleship, but specifically in regards to ministry, it's not healthy to do the comparison thing and to look at someone else's church or someone else's ministry and go, oh, if we could only do what they're doing. Nope. You're supposed to fulfill your ministry. I posted an article on the front page of the website, and it links you to an article um, by a pastor over on the East Coast. And and he had seen a billboard that talked about, um, you know, have you sparked change in the world today? And it was supposed to be like to advertise to college students that, listen, you're important. You mean something, and you could maybe be the change in the world. And he just goes, I've been in vocational ministry for 40 years. He goes, I still haven't found that spark to change the world. Because the reality is, Jesus didn't necessarily ask you to change the world. 
He asks you to be faithful, to follow him, and then to do the ministry that he's called you to. That's what he's asked you to be faithful to, is as he's revealed to you, Paul, you're going to the Gentiles. Peter, you're going to the Jews. James, you're going to stay in Jerusalem and deal with poverty and persecution, but that's what I'm calling you to, right? Each one of us is called to something very specific, and our job is to be faithful to the Lord in what he's called us to, not look at someone else's ministry and be jealous of it and go, oh, if I could only do what that person is doing. Only be faithful to run the race that God has called you to run, and in that, he will honor that. Take a look at verse 7. On the contrary, Paul says, when they, meaning those who seemed influential in Jerusalem, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that is the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Stop and just take that. This is what I was talking about last week in terms of apostolic succession. This would give us the understanding that God intended for all of the apostles and the ministries that they were called to, for the church to be propagated or grown, not simply through one of the apostles. Not just one, Peter notably, was in charge or had authority. All those who had been commissioned by Jesus had authority to go out, proclaim the gospel, and build the church, and then from their teaching, that is what became apostolic succession. So whether it was uh, James, John, Mark, Andrew, whoever it was that had received that apostolic call in their life, wherever they went and established the church, they passed on their authority to those that they discipled underneath them. That's how the church can still be unified in our purpose and belief, but have different locations and different denominations even that that is a part of the expansion of the church and so i believe this is what we see in evidence that tells us there isn't just one official church or one official ruler over the church he goes on in verse 9 and says and when james and cephas or peter and john who seemed to be pillars and i love sort of just his his deference or, or, or his caution, rather, in, in how he refers to these guys. He's not, again, name-dropping, saying, here's the big boys. He just says, they seem to be pillars. They seem to be the guys who knew what was going on. When James and Peter and John, who seemed to, be, seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. There was a unity in purpose and mission, very different context, very different cultures. Interesting, though, that in that unifying mission and vision was the ministry to the poor. This is one that I think (coughs) perhaps in a lot of ways we've missed out on in the expansion and growth. And, And when I talk about the critique of the church, I'm really talking about it in our context, in America, 2021, or the history of the church in America in the last 50 years or so, and what I would call sort of the the move towards church as entertainment rather than mission, where we're moving towards we want to move people through emotion rather than open the door for God to move spiritually in their lives. And the reason I... I am so focused on that as a critique is because what has happened is the watering down of the message of Jesus to the point of people believing things about Jesus that either scripture doesn't confirm isn't true or is such a distortion of the gospel that people aren't being saved in truth because they don't actually believe what Jesus did for them is effective in their lives, right? And and so when Paul notes that the church in Jerusalem, those guys, Peter, James, and John, and he and Barnabas, that they in the church in Jerusalem said, hey, listen, yeah, we're all teaching the same gospel. You go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jews. But hey, just remember the poor. 
I think there's an emphasis there that we can learn from and, and really is, is a big part of why my heart was so moved by what EEM is doing in Eastern Europe. We have to remember that we in our culture and society, we are so affluent. We have so many resources. And even if you happen to be in a, in a lower income tax bracket, just the fact that we live in America, you've heard this a million times, puts us somewhere in the, in the top percentage of people in the world. Even if we live in, a, in such a fashion here in America that we're not financially independently wealthy, those kinds of things, the fact that we have places to live and multiple sets of clothing and three meals a day and cars to get around on or easy access to public transportation, all of these things puts us in an echelon of the population of the world that is unreachable for most, unthinkable for most. I watch cooking shows and traveling shows when I watch television. Those are the things that I like to watch. And there's several guys where they travel to far remote locations in the world. And they sample the cuisine of the local tribes and these kinds of things. Listen, do you understand how big the world is? Like, yeah, it's small in the context of the universe, but just our own planet. It's ginormous. Do you realize that there's people living in Antarctica year-round? Like, Antarctica, at the bottom of the world. People live there all the time. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. The reality is this, is that most people in most places in the world can't even look, can't even imagine or dream to have the things that you and I have. And what Paul and the boys in Jerusalem are pointing out is that the gospel message that we have to share with people, the place where it's going to be the most effective is with those who know that they have need. When someone is truly poor, they know they have need. They know that, that of their own self, their own will, their own strength. They can't accomplish anything. They can't move beyond where, where they've been placed in life. And yet that's where the gospel takes a hold of. That's where it has powers with those who know that they don't have power in their own life. Well, Paul moves on, <coughs> pardon me, in verse 11. It's an interesting transition here. It, it seems very counterintuitive, but, but here's the next story that Paul shares in verse 11, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So he moves from, we're all in agreement to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews. Remember the poor as we're doing it. But then Paul immediately says that when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, meaning those that were sent by James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. This is an interesting antidote that, that follows the previous details of, of unity and authority within that apostolic generation that, that Paul had to confront Peter about something. Number one, it tells us this, that even the best of us, those guys that stood with Jesus, lived with Jesus, were, were commissioned by Jesus, they still had their moments. They still had their moments of sin. They had their moments of failing before the Lord because the work of salvation is not done in us completely until we're in glory with the Lord. That process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ, holier and holier through the years, it's a lifelong process. And there are some who would say, well, listen, if you're committing the same sin again and again, were you really saved? Are you really repentant? Listen, the reality is, is that God's grace to us is never ending. Should we, as we've studied previously, should we be people who test ourselves to see if we're in the faith? Absolutely, we should. When we sin, should we confess that to the Lord and say, Lord, I know I've fallen short again. I know I'm forgiven, but Lord, I'm confessing to you. I know that this was wrong and my desire is to pursue holiness. See, Paul's not, not bragging here. He's simply he's simply maintaining the truth and the consistency of the Christian life. And, and what it indicates, the language here, here indicates that Peter, Cephas, Peter, was somehow embarrassed that he withdrew. 
remember the setting is that in Antioch, he's hanging out with the Gentiles. Now remember, Peter was this good Jewish boy. Remember how when the Lord showed him that vision at Cornelius' house where the sheet was dropped down and, and the Lord tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat? And he says, not so, Lord. I've remained clean my whole life, meaning I've eaten kosher my whole life. I'm not going to go eat a pig. I'm not going to go eat shellfish or whatever the case might be. And yet the Lord says, don't call unclean what I've declared to be clean, meaning don't despise those who are not Jewish if they're coming to the faith. Peter had learned his lesson in that regard. He's hanging out with the Gentiles. He's eating with them. He's having fellowship with them. But when the good Jewish boys showed up from Jerusalem, it's like he was almost embarrassed of that fellowship. And he drew back from that fellowship. It almost, it, it almost causes us to remember the scene where Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus told him, you're gonna, before the cock crows, before the dawn breaks, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter was boldly saying, Lord, I'll go with you to the death. Like, there's nothing stopping me from supporting you. And yet, in the face of people accusing Peter, you're one of them. You're one of those Galileans. You're one of those ones who are with Jesus. Peter's cursing a little girl out going, no, I'm not. Quit saying that. Denying Jesus three times seems to have been a weakness of Peter's. And I think in studying this and seeing that, it's an understanding that we can have that, listen, we all have tendencies and we all have weaknesses that have to, from time to time, be confronted. Have to be confronted by a brother or sister in the Lord who says, hey, how are you doing with that issue? Are you good on that one? Are you still struggling with it? Now, here's the thing. We live in a culture as well that does not promote transparency. We live in a culture where people don't want to dive deep enough into each other's lives that we have to deal with dirty, gunky stuff. We want everybody just to smile and go, no, we're blessed. God's good. And we're doing fine. And the problem is, is that in the churches that we've been a part of, and at least I know this to be true for me, that if someone's struggling, that's maybe a conversation for a counselor in a room privately, and maybe that's good. But in revealing those hardships and those, those things that we're dealing with to someone else in the church, God forbid, I don't want anybody to have a bad opinion of me in the church. And yet what we see in Peter is that there was this tendency to fall to this type of sin, embarrassment or wanting to impress people or whatever the, the, the thing might be. And so Paul had to test him to his face. He had to confront him and call him out on these things. We need to keep watch over our faith and, and be sure that, that we are fulfilling the things that God has called us to. There's this old saying that the sins of teachers are the teachers of sins. If we allow certain sins to sort of remain in our life, our testimony then is that those sins are acceptable. We have to be people who hold ourselves to that higher standard to say we're free in Christ, but we're free not to sin. We're free to pursue holiness and righteousness. And the truth is, is at the end of the day, many of us feel this in a very specific way. We feel the weight of, of that sense of we've failed the Lord, whether it's not sharing the gospel with the person at the gas station or whatever the case might be, or, or failing in our relationships and not being Christ-like when we should have been loving and forgiving, all these kinds of things. If you're in that position or find yourself feeling like you've failed in these areas, uh, I want you to hear this. Again, Martin Luther says, no man's standing is so secure that he may not fall. If Peter fell, I may fall. If he rose again, I may rise again. We have the same gifts that they had, the same Christ, the same baptism, and the same gospel, the same forgiveness of sins. It's important for us to understand. Well, Look at verse 15 as we read when we first opened up the letter of Galatians, sort of the main point of the letter, getting to this point of understanding what justification is, to be declared righteous. Paul says in verse 15, <coughs> we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And this is why Paul opposed those who were teaching circumcision, that circumcision party that caused Peter to draw back from ministry to the Gentiles. This circumcision party, they were claiming that you had to fulfill that portion of the law to actually be saved. And Paul says here, nope, justification simply comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The language is important here when it says that we are justified by faith or through faith in Christ. It literally means to believe into Jesus. That's the language there when it says to believe in Christ. It means to believe into into Jesus. That's where we could sort of start to draw this contrast of people who believe simply things about Jesus. Perhaps they've heard the gospel, perhaps they've read the Bible or been to church, and they believe things about Jesus, that he's loving and he's kind and he's good and he's got a good plan for your life. And all those things are true, but oftentimes people stop there and they simply want to believe the things that they've heard about Jesus rather than, I love the phrase, believing into Jesus. Why is that so important? Because remember, his life becomes our life. Our sins, he takes upon himself on the cross so that it's almost as if we exit this sinful life that we've been in from our birth and we live into the life of Jesus. We're surrounded by his righteousness. The Bible says we're robed in the righteousness of Christ. And I believe far too many people have a false assurance of faith that they've believed things about Jesus but not actually believed in Jesus, upon Jesus, saying, Jesus, your life is now my life. My sins are now sacrificed and done away with. <clears throat> now imagine, if you will, that Paul here in this meeting place or in this situation where he was dealing with the Judaizers and then those who were in the church there, uh, he's sitting in a room and sort of having to, to teach between two groups of people. And there were those who were of the church of Antioch, which would seem to be Paul's home church. If you go back through the book of Acts, it seems like that was sort of his home base. And there he's, he's explicitly preached the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. And now there's this second group as well, including Peter and Barnabas, who have sort of been led astray under this false teaching uh, or this sort of legalism through the Judaizers. And Paul has to sort of answer the objections or the arguments of both sides of the group and continue to preach the gospel of Jesus with accuracy and consistency. And so take a look at what happens in verse 17. Paul says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Paul draws a line and says, just because we, we continue to sin after we've been declared justified, righteous in God's sight, does not mean that Jesus is somehow the author of our sin, since it's him we're following. He makes sure to draw that distinction and says, hey, listen, yeah, we're in Christ. We're saved. We're in, we have this new life. But we're still in the flesh, too. We're still going to fall and sin. And then he continues in verse 18 explaining this. For if I rebuild what I tore down... I prove myself to be a transgressor. Essentially, Paul's saying there is more sin in trying to find acceptance before God by our law-keeping than there is in sin in the everyday life as a Christian, right? We often latch onto some part of the Christian life, and because of our cultural experience in the churches that we've grown up in, or our own guilt, or some practice that we find interesting, right? Our zealousness for certain things, traditions in the church, we can begin rebuilding an expectation of legal obedience that the cross of Jesus Christ says has already been fulfilled and credited to our account. That's the caution, that we not rebuild the law in any way, but that we live in the grace of Jesus Christ. I've told this story a lot of times, but it really just depends on your perspective or, or your, um, your experience in, in regard to how churches dictate morality 
what's acceptable and not acceptable for Christians to do. I think it was J. Vernon McGee who told the story being from West Texas uh, in the 50s and 60s. You would never see boys and girls in bathing suits swimming together. That was unacceptable. Because why? Well, because you're showing skin off and there could be some uh, unclean thoughts that happen and you could end up doing something that was not godly, right? So young people didn't swim at the same swimming holes in bathing suits together in West Texas. But all the ranchers and farmers there smoked. And yet they were Christians and deacons and elders in the church. And that was accepted culturally within the Christian community in West Texas. Now, transfer that over to Southern California. Southern California, people are barely wearing any clothes at all, and they're swimming together and hanging out together and barbecuing and beach parties and all those kinds of things. But in the church in Southern California, if someone were to smoke a cigarette, it'd be like the world was coming to an end, right? Don't you know you are the temple of God and you're not supposed to defile the temple of God? Why would you smoke that cigarette? It's not even what that scripture's about. It's about joining yourself to a prostitute. Yeah, so, so you see the cultural things that we latch on to in the church. West Texas says, don't, boys and girls don't swim together because that's carnality. Southern California says, don't smoke cigarettes because it'll give you cancer, right? And each one of those things becomes a cultural tradition that we hold on to that becomes a legalism. None of those things have been dictated to us by scripture. The avoidance of sin in regard to our purity and our relationships, and the care for God's creation, including our bodies. Yeah, all of those things are there. Those things are good to know and to learn and to teach. But when you create a legalism out of those things, it's like you're undoing, you're destroying the work that has already been built up at the cross of Christ. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith with the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice that Paul doesn't say that the law was dead. The law always reflects, in its correct context, the holiness, the compassion, the heart, the character of God. There's nothing wrong with the law. David said, I love the law. I lay on my bed late at night and I meditate on your law, O Lord. I love your law. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. It wasn't the law that died. Paul died to the law. John Calvin would say, to die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from the law's dominion so that we have no confidence in the law and that it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. See, the law was never intended to save us. The law was simply intended to point us to our need for a savior. That's the purpose of the law. The law simply reflects God's holiness and perfection. The law is good. But it was Jesus who was able to fulfill the law perfectly so that he could be the perfect sacrifice and our savior. This whole scene that's taken place here, you can imagine how uncomfortable it could have been where there are people who are claiming to be a part of the church but are teaching heresy. There has to be a conflict. Your brother in the faith, who is, who is one of the mightiest preachers of the gospel, is all of a sudden acting foolish, and you have to confront him in front of everybody, right? You can imagine how uncomfortable and how hard this situation would have been for the Apostle Paul, and yet look at the outcomes. Look at the things that were gained by this comfortableness with uncomfortableness, Paul seems to, the evidence seems to be that he just never shied away from conflict. He was confident in what he was preaching and what he was doing, and he never shied away from doing what was right. Just look at the, at the results. Paul remains steadfast in the truth, continues to teach in that way. Peter was corrected, <coughs> pardon me, and became more convicted of the truth. Barnabas received right teaching and correct, correction, was able to continue on in his ministry, The Jewish party that was sent from James, who were trying to convince everybody to become circumcised, they were confronted with truth and had to decide how it was that they were going to move forward in faith, if they were actually going to believe in the grace of God in Jesus' sacrifice, or continue to try and build the law again. The Gentile believers in Antioch grew because their faith and freedom in Jesus was strengthened by the teaching of Paul. The Jewish believers in Antioch gained understanding of the truth of the work of Christ and its completeness, right? 
And in hearing this story and seeing the example of Paul, we get to grow in our convictions and devotion to our salvation through faith in Christ alone and his grace. And so Paul finishes this chapter by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If our salvation is by grace through faith alone, it cannot by necessity include any other form of personal accomplishment. There's nothing else we can add to it. If we do believe in Jesus and fill in the blank, do whatever else feels churchy, Christian-y, whatever, all of a sudden we nullify the cross of Jesus Christ and it becomes a cosmic joke. We have to surrender ourselves to the fullness of God's grace through the work of Jesus on the cross. Last statement, David Guzik says that all this good came, but only because Paul was willing to do something that was totally right, but extremely uncomfortable. Peter was willing to do that too when he admitted he was wrong. Peter and Paul were willing to sacrifice their comfort zone for what was right. And I think if anything, that's the message tonight for us. As I've said before, we have to start becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable, especially in this world. This world is not our home, as the old song says. We're just passing through. This is not the place that we look to to be our savior, our completeness, our joy. Jesus is our savior, our completeness, and our joy. And so in, in confronting that which is evil in us, sinful in us, praying for, working for the unity of the faith, the purity of the church. We look to Jesus only, not a single person, not a group of people, not a tradition, not a new legalism or law. We're to be zealous for Jesus and the grace of God.